So what I want to do today is to talk about the uh, developmental origins of health and disease, but in particular emphasize uh, the intergenerational component and try and understand why disease is coming out of a, a process that we, in another way, would think of as adaptive. All this plasticity should be adaptive. That's what we think in evolutionary terms. So how come an adaptive process that should be good is closely associated with diseases that clearly would be for that? So we have the evolution of the Bohat hypothesis. This is one of the uh, early studies um, showing an inverse association uh, between birth weight and coronary heart disease and stroke. And uh, really, the, the, the emphasis was directed to the low birth weight babies, uh, much higher risk of coronary heart disease uh, and stroke. Um, and so there was something about being born small that was central to the risk of heart disease or stroke and to life. Another classic paper from Nick Hales, who was at Addenbrooke's Hospital, uh, on birth weight and uh, glucose intolerance, so diabetes risk. Again, the small babies uh, at high risk of diabetes in later life. Now, these studies are coming out, there's plenty of them now, there's literally hundreds of these cohort studies showing these effects, but what does it really mean uh, for public health? With all the money going into epidemiology and into the trials and the animal studies, what should we actually do at a broader level? What is the real significance uh, of these associations? So the early findings were that low birth weight uh, was a strong predictor of mortality from different diseases and also just having <coughs> disease, suffering from the disease. Ischemic heart disease, type 2 diabetes, stroke and hypertension. Now that's not the full list of diseases, um, but uh, most of us concentrate on them because they account for such a broad component of mortality and morbidity. We've got plenty to deal with with these diseases, but if you wanted, you could extend it to osteoporosis, sarcopenia, chronic lung disease, um, even various social behaviours, um, and then some of this also applies to the epidemiology of cancer as well. If we look beyond the diseases, the low birth weight is also strongly associated with physiological markers of disease risk. So higher blood pressure, uh, higher levels of blood lipids, uh, poorer blood vessel function, insulin resistance, and so on. In other words, even in children, adolescents, young adults, uh, because these traits to some extent track over time, particularly if we don't modify our, our lifestyles, then you can see the disease kind of the, the, the proximate uh, determinants emerging very early in the life course and tracking onwards. So the, the first interpretation was that since low birth weight was the strongest predictor, we were somehow addressing the consequences of fetal undernutrition, fetal malnutrition. Um, if the fetus was malnourished, surely that must mean that the mother was malnourished, and so there wasn't enough supply going through to the fetus. And so the big message was that being small or thin at birth and also at one year was bad for your long-term health. And the question was, could nutritional interventions resolve this? Could you do something with mothers and stop this happening? And the notion that uh, uh, infant growth and, and birth weight uh, matters for long-term health was really uh, uh, demonstrated most strongly in papers like this from David Barker and colleagues in the New England Journal in 2005 he took his cohort and he categorized people according to whether they had or had not had a coronary event. Fairly uh, simple, yes-no uh, situation. And he looked back at the growth. And the, the dotted lines here are those people who actually experienced the coronary event, and the uh, straight line across at zero is those who didn't. So you're comparing uh, against the background of people who didn't have an event, those who did. 
And what you can see is that um, between birth and six months, these people were small, and they actually also became smaller between birth and six months. So it wasn't just that they were born small, uh, they also lost signs, weight and height and BMI, uh, during the first six months of life. Then they kind of tracked along, although there was a bit of catch-up in height, and then suddenly the reverse happened. They had some kind of catch-up growth, uh, particularly for weight gain, but not for height, uh, after two years of age. So, growing badly in early life was on the pathway in this study uh, to cardiovascular disease. So, to interpret this, uh, the first, uh, if you like, evolutionary model that was put forward was the very famous thrifty phenotype hypothesis. And the idea of this hypothesis is that being small in early life is a survival strategy. There's not enough energy, so you've got to scale everything down. But you don't scale things down equally. You compromise some organs in order to save others. And the idea was that to protect the brain, which is our air traffic control system, we really need that just to be a human, uh, you would surrender some investment in other organs, such as the pancreas and the liver. That'll help in the short term. You need less energy because organs take a lot of calories to fund, and if you have smaller organs, you don't need as much energy. So you might be more likely to survive in the short term, but when you enter adult life and you meet a high plane of nutrition, um, you're overweight, you're inactive, and you have a high glycemic or lipogenic diet, um, then you can't tolerate that diet because you don't have the organs that are able to maintain homeostasis. So that's the thrifty phenotype hypothesis. Now, the subsequent findings uh, started to change things because um, Alan Lucas and colleagues uh, were doing something very different. Instead of using these historical cohort studies followed up at the age of 70 years, they were doing trials of different milks in early life. And Alan Lucas and colleagues said, well, actually, it's infant growth that is positively associated with markers of chronic disease risk. Uh, and so the only reason you're seeing birth rate coming out in these statistical models uh, as predicting disease is because if you actually look, all of these models adjust for current weight. Now, if you have current weight and birth weight in a statistical model, and current weight is held constant, and birth weight is negative, they said that actually what that means is it's your change in size between birth and adult life. So they basically wrote off fetal growth and said, it's your change in size after birth that predicts your diseases. So they were doing these randomized trials of infant diet, which they had set up in order to promote brain growth in preterm babies. And they could promote brain growth in preterm babies. If you gave a high energy, high protein diet to preterm babies, they would have better cognitive function. But when they looked at what had happened to their cardiovascular risk, they saw that that had gone up if they got the better diet. So they reran these trials in other cohorts of babies born at term, and they found the same thing. So if you had a higher plane of nutrition in infancy, you had higher blood pressure, blood lipids, insulin and adiposity in adolescence. So it seems that you were also on the track towards uh, cardiovascular disease. So they had the opposite message. Apparently, growing as an infant was not bad for you. It was, uh, sorry, it, 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 growing was bad for you rather than not growing. Um, so these are all the same traits that David Barker had linked with poor growth in infancy and poor fetal growth, and suddenly it was being turned on its head. So how could we explain this apparent paradox? So, Axel Singel and Alan Lucas came up with the growth acceleration hypothesis that birth weight is irrelevant because in these randomized trials, uh, on average, birth weight is the same in each group. So, what they were describing could not be directly attributed to birth weight. 
And they claimed a lot of supporting data from a wide variety of animal studies. Um, particularly important was a, a review by uh, Metcalf and Moynihan in 2001 called Grow Now, Pay Later. The idea that if you grow fast in early life, there are some consequences in later life. So we have this very curious paradox. Um, apparently, it's not good to have low weight at one year of age. It would have been better to grow. And yet, apparently, it's not good to grow in infant life. It would have been better to grow slowly. So Single and colleagues literally published papers saying slow growth is beneficial for cardiovascular health. What on earth can be going on? So let's focus in a bit more detail on the process of growth. Uh, so we can divide growth up into two basic periods, although they slightly overlap. I should have had more overlap on that chart. Um, there's hyperplasia, which is an increase in cell number. And then it's followed by hypertrophy, which is an increase in cell size. And I want to emphasize that this has very different implications for what you're growing in those two different periods. And I've named two uh, generic traits, uh, metabolic capacity and metabolic load, which I'm now going to explain. And the idea is that they grow in different periods. And this means that your growth in different periods has very different uh, implications for your long-term cardiovascular risk. Now, the first thing we need to go back and, and look at is the fact that these epidemiological studies, in every case, did not just show that it was small babies with a high risk of later disease. They showed inverse dose-response associations across the whole of the birth rate range. So there's a slope coming down. In this particular example, the, the slope gets steeper for the smallest babies. But very often, we just see a fall. Your disease risk goes down the bigger you are at birth. You see the same thing now with Nick Hale's uh, study of uh, glucose intolerance. So even here, you're seeing that your risk goes down uh, if, you're, if you're larger. So most of the effect of whatever is going on here is, with, is happening within the normal birth rate range. We can't really say that these babies are malnourished. They haven't undergone fetal starvation if they're pretty much the normal birth weight uh, of the population. Rather, what we're saying is that every additional unit of birth weight reduces chronic disease risk. There's something you get when you're bigger at birth. So I've defined metabolic capacity as characteristics of organ structure and function. Um, now, this builds on the thrifty phenotype hypothesis, but it goes a little further by saying instead of just focusing on thrift uh, being the smallest group, uh, we need to have something that goes across the whole of the range of, of birth weight. So anyone can have more metabolic capacity if they're larger than birth. Metabolic capacity is uh, emerging during the period of hyperplasia. It's when you're setting down, if you like, the infrastructure of your organs. You're building the structure of the heart, the structure of the kidneys. Um, you're, you're building the number of nephrons in the kidney, which is important for blood pressure regulation. And you can't get any new nephrons in postnatal life. Whatever number you have at birth is fixed. And all of these traits confer homeostatic capacity, the ability to, main the body, to maintain the body in good health, to deal with all the, the fluctuations that are coming at you from lifestyle. So here are some examples of uh, things that scale with birth weight. This is lean mass uh, in Ethiopia, uh, obtained by the peapot against birth weight. So a very large sample, very clear dose-response association. The heavier you are at birth, the more lean mass you have. Now, lean mass is your muscle mass and all your organs, so generically, it's all the components of metabolic capacity. 
This is the capacity to secrete insulin at eight years plotted against ponderal index of birth. Now, for diabetes, it's thinness of birth that has turned out to be the strongest predictor of uh, later uh, diabetic risk. But here you can see that the heavier you are relative to your length, uh, the more insulin you can secrete at eight years of age. This is uh, lung function, which is essentially an airway size. So you have larger diameters of uh, components of the lung in relation to infant weight. So this is just a little bit past birth. But you would be seeing the same thing if you looked at birth itself. And this is the number of nephrons in the kidney. Again, um, pretty much a dose-response association. It might be tailing off right at the largest babies, but there's not very many data points. But across the main part of the birth rate range, uh, and there are other studies supporting this, more birth weight, more nephrons, better ability to maintain blood pressure. Now, if we were to do what most studies do, which is to pick out two groups, one of low birth weight and one of normal birth weight, often the low birth weight babies look strange. They look different. They've got this kind of completely different profile. But that could happen if the slopes relating birth weight to different organs are not the same, so that the lines actually kind of cross over in different ways. So if you looked in the, uh, the low birth weight baby, organ A would be reduced relative to organ C, whereas it would be the other way around in the normal birth weight baby. But that's an artifact of plucking out these two groups and separating them. If we looked at the whole range of birth weight, we would just see these scaling associations of metabolic capacity, and we would see that some organs are sacrificed more than others as we go down the birth weight range. Now, what is it that challenges uh, metabolic capacity? Well, that is what I've called metabolic load. It's clearly quite similar to allostatic load, but allostatic load was a, a concept designed to address the stress response, and it focused on the HPA axis. Um, and dealing with just the basic nutritional things that can promote ill health. Um, we can have an unhealthy diet, although we can also discuss whether this comes from the fat component or the carbohydrate component or other components. Um, there are elements of being physically inactive, although we still have to discuss whether that's being active being good or being sedentary being bad. We can look at sleep, all sorts of different aspects of activity. Obesity is a component of a metabolic load, but again, is it just being large, or is it the central fat in particular? And also, when we look at obesity, is it the weight status, is it the tissues that you have, or is it the metabolism that goes with it? So there are some questions we need to answer about exactly what metabolic load is, but we have much data showing that metabolic load is bad for your health. Now, the idea of the capacity load model is that we can then look to see how these two components interact to shape uh, the risk of chronic disease. So on the left-hand side here, we have metabolic risk, your risk of diabetes, heart disease, stroke, and hypertension. Along the front here, we have turtiles of metabolic capacity, which might be the proxy would be birth weight or infant weight, but inside the body, we would be looking at specific issues like nephron number, cardiac structure, pancreatic beta cells. <coughs> And then up the side here, we've got the turtles of metabolic load, which might be obesity or levels of childhood weight gain. Uh, to be more specific, it could be the mass of fat or lean, uh, dietary glycemic index or fat load or physical activity. And the idea is that your disease risk is clearly a function of how these two relate. Very briefly, can I just ask you, are those hypothesized sizes of those blocks or are those related to data? Um, Unfortunately, I forgot to put this in. There's been two fantastic papers published recently by Lee, L.I. and colleagues, who's a um, part of Janet Rich Edwards' group. 
And they have shown in three cohorts in the US an extraordinary uh, uh, set of data for both hypertension and diabetes that are exactly like this with five groups on each axis. Uh, it's just completely linear in each direction. So um, I haven't got the evidence in the talk, but yes, there's very strong evidence for this. So the idea is that um, for any level of uh, metabolic loads that you have, if you have less capacity, you will have a higher chronic disease risk. So even if you have a low load, there is some increased chronic disease risk if you have less capacity. But if you have a high level of load, then you really see the additional chronic disease risk as the capacity goes down. In the opposite direction, whatever amount of load, uh, capacity you have, whatever your birth rate is, if you pile on the load, you will have higher uh, chronic disease risk. So the highest disease risk occurs in those with the lowest capacity and the highest load. So that's what we know. It's the low birth weight babies who predict uh, coronary heart disease, but in the presence of obesity. That's when the, the association really emerges. So let's now um, add in a little bit of a focus on body composition, which is the area of human biology that I focus on the most. Um, I like to think of bodies like this. It's not very romantic, but it's very helpful. Um, we're all cylinders. Uh, so we have a height, the length of the cylinder. Then we have the width of the cylinder, which is broadly proportional on the inside to our lean mass. So lean mass scales very strongly with height. <coughs> and then, to some extent, our fat is around the outside. Not all of it, but much of it is subcutaneous. And so we can think of a second cylinder around the outside um, of fat. And we can look at the length um, and the uh, volumes of both of those cylinders. Now, if we go back to this paradox that uh, growth um, in early life seems to be uh, that both bad growth, but slow growth and rapid growth seems to increase the risk of chronic diseases. Body composition can help us understand what's going on. So what David Barker uh, and all his colleagues in epidemiology with these retrospective cohort studies were doing, was starting off looking at groups who differed in their birth weight and asking what happened if you adjusted for their uh, adult size. Now what that means is that you're holding constant your metabolic load in adulthood and you're looking back and you're saying it wasn't good to have a low capacity. So that's consistent with David Barker's approach. The randomized trials, the single and Lucas, were doing something very different. They were starting at the same. The two groups would have the same birth rate. But then they would engineer greater load in one group. And so they started with the same capacity that gained more load. And so again, that predicts the disease. So actually, these approaches are not uh, inconsistent. They have just emphasized different components of the whole process. And it's worth remembering that, in a way, low birth rate here is looking backwards, and here, normal birth rate is looking forwards. So the epidemiology isn't really uh, contradictory. What exactly is going on in infancy? Well, I think what David Barker was showing is that you're still gaining your metabolic capacity in infancy. You can still gain pancreatic beta cell mass during infancy. So if you don't grow during that period, you're still having the thrifty phenotype, you're still failing to get your full homeostatic capacity. You can't grow nephrons in infancy, but you can get other components. So if you don't grow, you'll still constrain your uh, metabolic capacity. But also, the rapid growth in infancy may already start to elevate metabolic loads. So you may see blood pressure start to go up and fat increase. So infancy is a period during which both metabolic capacity and metabolic load can develop. And being at either extreme, in different ways, appears not to be good for long-term health. But we still know the least about exactly what's going on during that period. 
So we can see that uh, body composition is very helpful for understanding this. Um, we can ask what you can have at birth. Um, we can also see how when you have catch-up growth, you don't necessarily get back your missing metabolic capacity. Um, to some extent, starting off with lower levels of lean mass at low birth weight, if you have catch-up growth, you actually partially inflate your fat stores. So that's been shown in many studies that catch-up growth isn't just about gaining that missing height, if you like, it's also associated with an increase in adiposity. So catch-up growth is uh, a balance or a basket of uh, costs and benefits. Okay, so that's the physiological side, if you like. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to... No, we shouldn't say questions at the end, but... Um, that's the model that I'm sort of working on when I now switch to uh, evolutionary issues. So, we want to think about uh, how this is all happening, why we do this, why we grow in this particular way. And I want to focus on the intergenerational component for the rest of the talk. So, what is it that's passed across generations? I mean, it's phenotype, because we see phenotypic correlations, but, but in what? In, is it adiposity that gets uh, replicated? Is it physique and growth patterns? Are we transmitting resources? Are we transmitting information that's somehow adaptive? Uh, are we uh, transmitting predictions, which is the focus of the predictive adaptive response hypothesis? So let's have a look at that hypothesis. So the idea of Kuhlman and Hansen is that when you're a baby in early life, you receive cues from the environment, and you respond to that by predicting that the environment will be the same when you grow up to be an adult. And therefore, what you should do with that information is respond to it, adapt to it, prepare yourself for the same conditions. So if that's true, then selection would be acting up here on your fit with the adult environment. So the mother becomes essentially a window onto the environment. You scan the mother, the mother transmits the environmental information, and your adaptive response is to prepare yourself for those conditions in adult life, when your reproductive success is going to come. So, they propose that the low birth rate baby adapts both in the short and the long term. And the short term is small because there's not much energy, but it's also preparing all these metabolic traits that are going to be good if it experiences famine in adult life. So it's got insulin resistance to protect the brain. It's got central fat uh, along with insulin resistance as uh, protection um, for uh, harsh adult conditions. And this was uh, rolled out in numerous publications by these authors. But there are many uh, uh, problems uh, with this hypothesis. Uh, one in particular is that small babies are not insulin-resistant at birth. They're actually insulin-sensitive, and that's what helps them undergo catch-up growth. By being more sensitive to insulin, they're better at getting hold of incoming nutrition and diverting it uh, to length uh, growth. So that's actually how they catch up. Um, insulin resistance appears to come later, and uh, this is a study that suggests that insulin resistance comes at around two years of age, which is a very interesting time, because that's when growth is broadly canalized. So suddenly, we see abdominal fat increasing between two and four years of age in small for gestational age compared to appropriate gestational age babies, and at the same time, you see the insulin resistance emerging. So if the catch-up has a kind of overshoot and switches from length growth to weight gain on its own, um, then you get this central fat and you get this insulin resistance. But possibly if this didn't happen, if you didn't have that excess weight gain, uh, if you remember that was also one of David Barker's pathway to uh, coronary heart events, um, if you don't have that 
weight overshoot you probably won't get by the insulin resistance either. So adiposity and insulin resistance only develop when you have excess childhood weight gain. And if you were born small, but you don't go into a kind of uh, obesogenic niche, then birth weight doesn't predict any of these traits. So very nice study of uh, farmers from uh, the Gambia, uh, where most nutritionists are familiar with in one way or another. Um, so Sophie Moore showed that birth size doesn't predict the glucose insulin axis. And the reason is that these farmers eat a very healthy diet and they're very active. They have no metabolic load. So there's no uh, effect of uh, uh, low capacity. So metabolic thrift does not develop exactly uh, when the predictive adaptive response theory predicts would be useful. Now there's various other studies, uh, which I don't have time to discuss here, which also do not support predictive adaptive response hypothesis. There are studies of uh, pre-industrial Finnish population showing that if you're born in a famine, you're least likely to survive or have offspring if you have a famine in adult life. So just to re-emphasize, what we're showing here is that if you don't have a metabolic load, then the implications of variability in metabolic capacity in early life are moderately low. And that also has implications for what we should be doing about all of this in public health. If we could get rid of unhealthy adult lifestyles, it wouldn't matter so much that we're different sizes at birth. If you like, this is introducing inequalities into cardiovascular risk. Still, the main fact that makes us have heart attacks and diabetes is that we're not healthy as adults. So, in all this interesting stuff that we're showing with the DOHAS hypothesis, we should not forget that if we had healthy adult lifestyles, we would have low levels of chronic disease, regardless of our birth rate. So, I've emphasized uh, a different um, uh, model of how information is obtained and used in early life, and this links with uh, various other people who've also been interested uh, in, in similar approaches. Um, here the idea is that cues don't really enter directly through the mother from the environment of past to the offspring. Rather, cues uh, enter into uh, the previous generations, the grandmother, the mother, possibly even the great-grandmother. And to the extent that the offspring is seeing anything, it's seeing the mother and, and how she's gained her own uh, phenotype. And if there's an adaptive response, it's how the offspring fits its uh, development to the cues gained from the mother. So we're not adapting to the environment here, we're adapting to maternal phenotype. So I've emphasized maternal capital, and that builds on the work by Kaplan and colleagues who defined embodied capital as physical traits and functional capacities acquired over the life course um, to promote investment in offspring. So maternal capital can be defined as any aspect of maternal phenotype, whether somatic or behavioral, which enables differential investment in the offspring. So I think embodied capital is fantastic for biocultural anthropologists because it allows us to integrate uh, many different aspects of human life uh, and think how they benefit offspring. So you can think of uh, capital uh, accumulating over the long term or being gathered by liquid. So I uh, focused on liquid capital versus uh, somatic capital or illiquid capital. You can't go back and change your height. Once you've got your adult height, that's a component of capital that's relatively fixed, but we can ask how you got it in early life. Whereas fat stores are more changeable in a short-term basis. We could go on a diet or we could uh, gain uh, weight and so on during adult life. So some elements of capital are more sensitive to the current environment, and some elements are more, uh, if you like, 
uh, fixed in early life according to the mother's own experience. Now, I'm particularly interested in how body fat might be considered a kind of a strategy. Um, I think there's some very interesting overlaps between social capital, your social network, your supportive network, and your physical capital, which is the energy you carry around in the body. In many ways, these both represent a kind of generalized energy currency. If I do something useful for my neighbor today, they might do something useful back to me tomorrow, but it could be different. I could babysit their children today, and they could help me out with some food tomorrow when I don't have a harvest. Equally, if I eat something with some food, I could convert that back into leptin that will fund my immune function tomorrow. So what's very nice about fat and social capital is they can collect a wide variety of resources, store it either in the body or in the community, and then it's like a bank account that you can draw on and spend in different ways. And if you've got all these different uh, sources of capital and different ways to use it, you don't have this problem that is emphasized by life history theory is that you've, you've had all these trade-offs in how you use energy. It doesn't have to be such a trade-off if you've got a bank balance. You can think carefully about how to uh, use your resources. So you can imagine the body, in some ways, uh, having the ability to make strategic decisions rather than just spend every calorie on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. So we can think of the mother as a kind of safe harbor who actually stops and this is very different to the predictive adaptive response hypothesis, partly what the mother does is stop all the environmental information coming into the offspring. The offspring is very vulnerable. It's a, it's a bundle of small cells, and uh, it doesn't have its own metabolism uh, really going at this age, and so it couldn't cope with all these ecological system uh, signals coming in, particularly if these signals are fluctuating. Uh, a food shortage one week, and uh, normal food intake the next. So mother buffers the ecological stresses, which means that what the offspring adapts to is the safe harbor, or the maternal capital. So the niche that the uh, offspring adapts to in early life is not the external environment, it's maternal metabolism. That has many interesting features. Maternal height, representing <coughs> her growth in early life, uterine volume, her energy stores, and also her homeostasis. How is she dealing with her food intake and what kind of glycemic control does she have and what kind of lipid uh, regulation does she have? And these, of course, are all about the mother's metabolic capacity. What is her machinery, if you like, for maintaining homeostasis? So to the extent that the mother is good at homeostasis or not good, that will affect uh, the baby. So if the mother has gestational diabetes, that's going to completely change the niche that the baby is occupying. Then we can think about capital transfer. So the mother has many ways of acquiring resources to build up her capital stores in an abstract sense, and these will affect what she can uh, transmit to the next generation. Um, with collaborators in Cambridge, we've been looking at education in the mother, but also education in the offspring, because growth patterns in early life predict educational attainment in the offspring. So this is actually a very broad approach. Again, hopefully it'll be interesting to biocultural anthropologists in thinking of the links between education and nutrition. Now, what happens uh, in terms of maternal capital? You know, the most obvious one might be her energy supply, how much fat she's got at the beginning of pregnancy or her food intake and during pregnancy. But we can look at many other uh, components of maternal capital, and it turns out that they really matter for offspring health. So we can look at early maternal growth. That's her accumulation of capital through her own development. 
We can look at gender equality. Society uh, has a lot uh, to say about the status of women, and that affects the capital of the women. We could focus on psychosocial stress or violence, how are women treated in society. And again, this is hopefully a way that the maternal capital model can be linked to much broader issues. It's not just about nutrition, it's about the way that people live their lives. So here's a graph showing associations between the risk of mortality before uh, 59 months in children or the risk of those children being underweight or stunted. And those response associations for all of these outcomes. Shorter mothers have poorer child health outcomes. So this is mothers gaining capital in their early life and it benefits their offspring. And these are quite big effects you can see from the, the risks uh, compared to the tall mothers and the short mothers. Uh, this is a paper in press by uh, Marfetier and colleagues where we looked at uh, gender equality across countries and the risk of low birth rates, stunting, wasting, and mortality under five years in children. Extraordinary associations. Now, we then adjusted the GDP, but we could still find that actually G the gender inequality index displaced GDP from a statistical model. If you actually were looking at gender inequality in societies, the level of economic growth was no longer a predictor. Uh, for stunting and wasting, independent of GDP, gender inequality explained about 10% of the variance across countries, and about 40% of the variance in childhood mortality. So never mind how many resources countries have, if women are treated more equally in terms of access to labor markets, representation uh, in political processes, and health resources directed at maternal problems, you see massive benefits uh, for um, the offspring. Now, some people have said that uh, I should be criticized because I'm treating the mother as a kind of vessel for improving children's health. <coughs> really, we were trying to say the opposite. We were trying to say you need to treat women well for themselves, but it will also have benefits for the next generation. We simulated what would happen if we improved gender inequality, and we also simulated similar effects for uh, improving uh, Wealth. So we got GDP on the axis, bottom axis here, and gender inequality uh, here. And broadly, you can see that you would cut the prevalence of stunting remarkably if you moved from a gender unequal society to a gender equal society. Now, these are only simulations. We need to go out and do this. We need to improve gender equality and show that over time we do actually benefit uh, children's uh, stunting and, and, and survival. But on the basis of the model, gender equality is a very strong predictor. And there are good reasons for understanding why. Because when countries have higher GDP, it doesn't get through to women. They often don't have autonomy in household spending and so on. So a country may be wealthier, but it doesn't mean that women have access to more resources. Uh, we've also looked at um, the intergenerational effects of war on the health of children. Again, uh, not very well explored, uh, but there's actually a lot of evidence across uh, different studies and this is another way of understanding that the way that adults experience their life transmits uh, costs or benefits to the next generation. And we hope that this would stimulate discussion of what needs to happen in post-conflict uh, situations that, where the effects are actually much more long-lasting than is often recognized. Okay, so that's the maternal capital hypothesis. The offspring can't see the external environment, so if it makes an adaptation, that adaptation is to maternal capital. Well, what's the offspring going to do? It's got to develop its own life history strategy, but what should it actually be doing in that sense? So 
We also know about parent-offspring conflict. So to the extent that the offspring is exposed to maternal capital, this isn't just a kind of beneficent uh, environment. There's always going to be uh, genetic conflict between the life history strategy that maximizes maternal fitness and that which maximizes uh, the offspring's fitness. So we can think of a, a tug of war over nutrition. How much capital should a mother transfer to each individual offspring? So it's obvious to say that offspring do better when they're bigger. This is uh, neonatal mortality rate in Bangladesh, and you can see an exponentially increasing uh, risk of mortality um, as the offspring gets smaller. So clearly the offspring wants to be bigger, if it can, and the mother, to an extent, also wants bigger offspring because it doesn't have any benefits to the mother to have offspring that don't survive. But what we can say is that the uh, returns from investing in offspring diminish uh, with the law of diminishing returns. So the, the slope of the payoff for offspring fitness tends to flatten off. Now, that means that for both the mother and the offspring, there comes a point when it's better to transfer maternal investment to another offspring, because offspring share genes with their siblings, uh, and therefore they also get a payoff in their fitness if they have siblings. Parent-offspring conflict simply says that the time at which the mother and the offspring uh, would be optimizing their fitness for making that switch is different. The offspring is always selected to prefer more investment before that switch is made. So you can think of two dynamic games interacting. We've actually got a, a project going on in Cambridge at the moment, uh, dynamic game theory, where we're, we're modeling these. We're modeling how offspring should build their body, uh, playing a game of investing in muscles, uh, visceral organs, and fat, uh, according to their nutritional intake and what will uh, be good to have later to survive. And then we're linking that with the mother's game, where she plays an allocation game across competing offspring. So she's got to divide up her investment, and the offspring has to divide up between its tissues. Now, if the offspring is so poorly prepared that it dies, then the mother has to go back and revise how many offspring she has and how much uh, energy she passes to each. But once she's got her strategy, then the offspring just has to live with what it gets. And we've seen that these dose response associations, the metabolic capacity, the bigger the birth weight, the more uh, of these useful tissues the offspring gets. Now, what happens when we give uh, more resources? Uh, this is uh, an unpublished model at the moment by Rufus Johnson in Cambridge. And he showed that what happens depends on whether the change in the quality of the environment is in the long term or the short term. And very simply, if there's a short term change, short term windfall of energy, if you like, then it goes to the offspring. You might as well just give an unexpected little bit of extra energy to the offspring, and this offspring will be better. But if there's a systematic improvement of the environment, from the mother's point of view, the long-term fitness payoffs lie in having more future offspring. She should actually have additional offspring. And therefore, instead of having a bigger offspring now, she should have uh, a larger uh, family size and uh, increase the number of uh, offspring. And so these lines diverge sharply on the graph uh, in terms of whether the payoff will be in maternal fecundity uh, or offspring size and survival. <coughs> so what guides uh, the offspring life history strategy? Now traditionally, most interest on life history strategy has come from focusing on extrinsic risks. The risk of mortality could be infectious disease, could be starvation, or whatever. 
But what I've been doing by focusing on metabolic capacity is to say that actually the constitution of the body is critical. Um, if we build a bigger body, we're more likely to survive in early life and we're more likely to survive uh, or be resistant to chronic diseases uh, in later life. Well, not necessarily a bigger body, but a healthier body with better organs. Uh, so reduced investment in somatic tissues reduces the chances of survival and favors earlier reproduction. So this is the life history dilemma that the offspring faces. If it isn't going to build a robust body that's going to last for a long time, it needs to get out there and start reproducing earlier. Otherwise, it will have no fitness payoff at all. Now, this is a very uh, fascinating data set from the ASPAC study. I should have put uh, Ken on as the first author here. Uh, in 2007, in um, What we did here was we divided up the sample according to the age of Menneke of the mother. So we've got two lines. Uh, these are quintiles. So we've got the earliest quintile from maternal Menneke and the latest quintile from maternal Menneke. And then we've got the pattern of growth in the offspring. What you can see is that if the mother has early Menneke, her children grew very rapidly as infants, then they grew at the same rate as other children, then they went into early puberty, and what that means in the long term is it's likely they will then have shorter adult stature. They've got through their growth earlier, finished it earlier, and therefore they will be shorter, even though they have seemed a little bit ahead of the rate uh, at the early stage. In the other direction, the mothers who had late Menneke, their children grew slowly as infants, then at the same rate as other children. They went into puberty later, and we therefore expect them to be taller in adult life. Now, I can't say what they're like as adults, because this study looked at them uh, in, uh, at the beginning of adolescence. But on the basis of other studies, we're expecting those high patterns to unroll. What's very interesting about this is that the mothers themselves had these traits. So early Menneke mothers were shorter and fatter, and the late Menneke mothers were taller and leaner. So it seems that the offspring are replicating uh, these same life history uh, profiles. We don't know if it's genetic uh, or whether it's uh, plasticity. Um, I would suggest at least part of it is plasticity because there were small differences in birth weight, and we think of early life as a, as a major period of plasticity. But, but we don't actually have evidence yet to say that for sure. So we looked at this in a little bit more detail um, to try and look at the health consequences of this. So this was a student project done in London. We studied South Asian women. Um, all of them had had four South Asian grandparents. The majority had been born in the UK, but some overseas. But if they'd been born overseas, I think we can say that they were a middle-class population. I don't think anyone in this study had experienced adversity. In fact, quite the opposite. They've had favorable nutrition uh, uh, really through their development. And we wanted to focus on the way that maternal investment was correlated with the subsequent life history patterns of the offspring. And our logic was this, that here is your range of maternal investment on the left, and it affects your pace of development, your investment in energy stores, and the other side of that would be the investment in lean mass, and your metabolic health. And the idea is that as your metabolic investment by the mother goes down, you're obliged to have a faster life history, mature faster. You invest in fat instead of height because you need to get out there and breed earlier, and that comes with a cost. You have poorer uh, metabolic capacity and higher metabolic load, and therefore poorer metabolic health. In other words, you've got a higher risk of all these uh, uh, chronic diseases, cardiovascular disease and diabetes, and so on. 
And this is exactly what we found. Here you can see that the heavier your birth weight, the later these women went into menarche. So more investment by the mother slows down the rate of maturation of the daughter. The later you had menarche, the taller you were as an adult. So a slower life history trajectory allows longer for growth and results in taller adult size. Then, the earlier you went into menarche, the more you've invested in fat by adult life. So now the slope goes the other way. It's the early menarche uh, women who have the higher levels of body fat. And unsurprisingly, those with higher body fat have higher blood pressure. So that's the trade-off. There's an investment in uh, energy stores for reproduction, but it comes at a cost of higher blood pressure, which we know has two pathways leading to it, low birth weight and higher metabolic load. So, to some extent, we can say that your lifespan depends on your metabolic capacity, your ability to just keep the body working, uh, uh, maintain the body, prevent oxidative stress, and so on. Um, the lower your metabolic capacity, uh, the greater the need to adopt a faster life history, and that means shunting energy from maintenance to reproduction. <coughs> now, not all of these costs may actually be paid, because if you are going to have a shorter lifespan, then there's not actually time for the worst chronic diseases uh, to develop. So future discounting is quite interesting. If you do go for this faster life history trajectory uh, in, a, in a risky environment, uh, to some extent you, you pick up penalties, but you never pay them, because you're not living long enough uh, anyway. So this is um, uh, a small study. Uh, we're replicating it at the moment in a, in a large cohort study because we really want to know uh, with more confidence uh, about these associations. South Asians living in Britain are quite an interesting population because they've changed uh, environment quite drastically. Um, so we want to know more about both sexes as well. But at this stage, I think this is very stimulating, a trade-off between um, maintaining the body healthily versus uh, preparing for early reproduction, uh, and that's mediated by internal investment. Okay, now we've seen that plasticity in our life is very important, but how long should it last? Now, I've emphasized in several papers that I think the critical windows evolved to match the period of maternal care. And that's because it's only, uh, if you like, safe to be plastic when the safe harbor is there. The mother's physiology can buffer you from many uh, external ecological stresses. And when the mother takes that uh, buffering away, then the child will be very vulnerable, and something else happens to growth. It becomes canalized. It becomes uh, relatively stable. We call it a self-writing mechanism. If you have an insult, the body slows its growth temporarily or speeds up temporarily, but in the end it gets back onto its trajectory. So we talk about tracking. And that's why there's so much interest in early life, variability emerges, but then this critical window closes, and whatever phenotype you have, particularly the growth traits, tends to track on subsequently. Now, this isn't true for everything, because there are other traits like reproduction that stay plastic, but for growth and growth-associated traits, um, then I think it's, uh, a, very, uh, it's a fairly clear-cut situation. So the idea is that the mother uh, solves the problem of addressing all these ecological fluctuations by smoothing over all those signals and giving a single metabolic signal to the fetus, and that's the physiological niche that it has uh, to occupy. And when the mother buffering is removed, then growth uh, and metabolism become canalized. 
But maternal care varies substantially across populations. So in a country like the UK, only three quarters of mothers even initiate breastfeeding, um, only half the breastfeeding at all at six to eight weeks, and less than 2% at six months. Now, there's a lot of heterogeneity in, in developing countries, but certainly there are higher rates of initiation of breastfeeding and a, a longer average duration. Now, the question is, could these different patterns of breastfeeding themselves shape uh, the duration of critical windows? So this is a theoretical perspective. So we know that there's uh, a maternal fitness payoff for uh, investing in the offspring. Uh, but eventually, it would be better for her, as we have seen, to invest in the next offspring. So the benefit curve to the mother first rises and then it falls. There's also a cost to the mother, which increases over time, because the baby is getting bigger, and therefore to supply uh, breast milk for the offspring is an increasing cost for the mother. And so that cost will go up, and as the benefit starts going down, really, for the mother, it's better to switch to the next offspring. And to optimize uh, maternal fitness, what you should do is find the point which those two lines are furthest apart. Now, this is David Haig's model for when you should be born. But the great thing about models is you can adapt them for all sorts of different discussions. So it's the same model. I should take no credit for the model, but just the discussion that's uh, uh, going around it. Now, the offspring will also have costs uh, from the mother continuing to breastfeed, because it, too, would benefit eventually from having a sibling. But the offspring is only sharing 15% of its genes with its mother, and therefore it's only going to genetically carry half the costs. So its line increases uh, more slowly. So if the offspring wants to maximize its own fitness, it should find the gap between these lines, uh, which is going to be different. And typically, it's going to be later. And that means that the optimal time to wean a baby should be a compromise between what maximizes maternal fitness and what maximizes the offspring fitness. And anyone who has a baby will know that this compromise is a tug of war based around crying and frustration and, uh, and so on. So what I'm suggesting is that uh, if we change uh, the duration of care uh, or the function, the shape of the fitness function, we might move that compromise in terms of this time. In other words, a shorter duration of care is predicted on theoretical grounds to translate into a shorter duration of the critical window. Now, I'm not going to have time to go into more detail about what that means. I think at the moment it's a very interesting hypothesis which would be nice to study empirically. But one thing we do know is that breastfeeding, uh, sorry, weight gain in, during infancy has very different associations with long-term body composition <coughs> in low- and middle-income countries versus high-income countries. Broadly, rapid infant weight gain in the West makes babies become fat adults. Whereas rapid infant weight gain in a country like Brazil or India makes someone taller and have more demons. And one possibility is that different patterns of breastfeeding are shaping how the baby is building its body, investing in different tissues. So we can see pieces of the jigsaw kind of consistent with the hypothesis, but we haven't really tested the hypothesis rigorously. One thing that's very interesting about humans is that uh, we've really reduced overall uh, the level of maternal care. So if we compare ourselves to apes and look at how long we gestate babies and how long it is before we wean babies, and we give humans a value of 2.8 years based on studies of foragers, then compared to an orangutan in which 47% of the total period of development is <coughs> under the umbrella of maternal nutrition, foragers only have 17% of the total period of development because we breed at around uh, 19 years. 
And there's some variation between populations. But only a small minority of the time is actually directly under maternal nutritional provision. And if you looked at farming populations who don't wean as late as 2.8 years, that would be even lower. So with all this emphasis on the importance of the first thousand days of life, uh, the fact is that humans appear to have squashed down. Maybe uh, orangutans have several thousand um, days of life, and humans have been left curiously with this very brief period. The last thing I want to look at is what happens if maternal capital is uh, constrained over the longer term. Uh, what happens if we have a situation of multiple generations of malnutrition, even secular decreases in maternal size, and lower levels of maternal lean and fat, and perhaps less energy coming in uh, during pregnancy or lactation? Now, to address this, we adopted the same study design that was used in a classic study in the 1930s, which looked at what happens when very small ponies, Shetland ponies, uh, were interbred with very large horses, Shire horses. Um, this was one of the uh, very original nutrition uh, studies. And you can actually replicate this, not experimentally in humans, but observationally, by looking at what happens when uh, people of different backgrounds uh, interbreed. So we've got lots of reasons to be interested in uh, Indian people versus European people. We know that uh, the average birth weight in India is about 2.8 kilograms compared to about 3.5 in the UK. And we know um, if we compare across the two populations, um, we see particularly uh, large differences in um, circumferences of the chest and the abdomen, which are some proxy for organ size. But we see much less differences in body fat. So this is being called the thin fat phenotype, the idea that even at birth, people of Indian origin have very low levels of lean mass, metabolic capacity, uh, but they preserved uh, their fat. So we studied uh, birth weight uh, in uh, couples who either had two European parents, two Indian parents, or one parent of each ethnic group. And we were able to make a number of different comparisons and ask uh, what the consequences were for birth rate. So the most obvious comparison is to say, what happens if your parents are both European and uh, your parents are both Indian? Clearly, this is an observational study. We just obtained birth records with ethnicity um, from the National Statistics Office. Um, we could also say, um, what happens if uh, you compare European mothers <coughs> with Indian mothers holding constant the ethnicity of the father? So here, the fathers are always European. What's the difference between the European mother and the Indian mother? And here, the father is always Indian. Then we can say, what happens if two parents are Indian compared to the mother being Indian but the father being European? And then in the other direction, what happens if the mother is, in both cases, European, and now the father is Indian, or the father is European? So the most obvious uh, result is that if both your parents are um, European, um, you have a much higher birth rate than if both parents are Indian. It's not as drastic as comparing Indians living in India. So here, two Indian parents in the UK had, in this study, a birth weight just above 3 kilograms. But nevertheless, it's nearly 400 grams less than if both parents were European. So that's the, the biggest uh, difference. Now, when we look at the uh, inter-ethnic unions, uh, we see something very interesting. If the Indian mother has a baby with a European father, it's possible for the baby to be bigger. So, if we think that the mother was not able to give more capital to the baby, that's not really true, because if a European father came along, 
somehow more capital got transferred and the baby was larger. So this maternal uh, constraint is, if you like, not fixed. Um, so maybe that constraint is partly coming from the Indian father. And that's supported by the left-hand side of the graph. Compared to two European babies, uh, parents, if the mother is European but the father is Indian, then the baby is slightly smaller. Not, not a huge difference, but I think about 90 grams. So that gives some indication that perhaps Indian fathers have actually adapted to lower levels of capital in Indian mothers, and they actually are generating a fetal demand for slightly lower levels of uh, fetal growth. Now, again, I think it's a very interesting study, but we have to be a bit careful about how we interpret it. We've had no opportunity to address any behaviors, cultural issues, and so on. Uh, we don't know who these people are. Um, we just have uh, a statistical database where we have ethnicity and birth rate. Um, we don't know if this is genetic or if it could be epigenetic. Have Indian fathers accumulated uh, something about marking the genome which changes fetal demand, or is it actually genuinely uh, a genetic difference? So, again, it's a starting point of an endpoint. This is a study that makes us interested in how uh, growth may differ in populations over time. But what uh, we can say is that maternal capital is very important for investment. It's, uh, there's also a maternal strategy that we need to take into account. Uh, this investment appears to shape the offspring metabolic capacity, and we know that goes on to shape uh, short-term survival and adult longevity. But in that case, we can look back at this generation and say that uh, the previous generation has imprinted the health status of the current generation. And less investment may favor a faster life history, although we need more data to confirm that. Now this was the, uh, if you like, the, sort of the more biological side of this approach. Um, but where this talk ends, another talk will begin. So um, for anyone who's able to come to the European Human Behavior and Evolution Association in London, uh, they're meeting 5th to 8th April, uh, I'm giving another talk there when I'm gonna focus much more on what this means in terms of the power relations uh, that characterize human society. So biology tells us what can happen. It doesn't really tell us why things are happening. The main reasons for human malnutrition or overnutrition have to derive from human society. That's what's acting on our underlying biology. So this is a book that's coming out in uh, June this year. Cover will look something like that. That's a mock-up. Um, but uh, really, what I'm interested in is why we have societies which produce hierarchy and shape nutrition so profoundly to the extent that the relationship between societal organization and human health is strongly mediated by nutrition. And we get left to the question, why nutrition? Why is nutrition so important to um, these social differences in health? So if anyone's got time to come to that, uh, it'll be not a huge amount of overlap with this talk. Hopefully, we'll draw on uh, those issues. But thank you very much for coming, and I look forward to questions.